In the first year of his presidency, Donald Trump sent out more than 2,300 tweets. He signed more than 50 executive orders. And he visited a golf course an estimated 92 times. How do we measure President Trump's first year in office? And how does it compare to other presidential first years? You know, Trump is having to step carefully about white segregationists because they're in his party. So did John Kennedy. Uh, in his first year, uh, didn't send up civil rights legislation to the Congress because he knew in his own party white segregationists uh, would not only turn it down, but then they would be against most of his other new frontier policies. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we're taking a closer look at the powerful men who have governed our nation, plus what their lives can teach us about American history. Martin Van Buren, the eighth president, passes away during the Civil War. and. Every other president, up to Teddy Roosevelt, the 26th president, is affected by that. And so you keep seeing it from all these different angles. But first, experts at the University of Virginia's Miller Center believe a president can best look forward by first looking back. That's the premise behind the First Year Project, which takes a microscope to previous presidential first years in order to advise our current president. Here to walk us through their findings are Bill Antholis, director and CEO of the Miller Center, and Barbara Perry, director of presidential studies at the Miller Center. Presidential first years are this extraordinary opportunity, not just for the new president, but for the country. Once every four years, we give a person a mandate to lead us. And as the year goes along, their support dwindles and their experience rises. And in that year, in working with Congress, they can actually accomplish some things. Um, And some of the great accomplishments in American history have happened in first years. We also became interested in the danger of first years. There was a lot of particular national security crises where an an inexperienced team comes in and you get a Bay of Pigs. You get a 9-11. So we were looking at both the promise of first years and the peril of first years and seeing are there lessons that we could teach an incoming administration. So you formed a team to research every president's first year, and some of them had two first years. What criteria do you give your team, and what kind of data do you collect? Right. So we had we have a crack professional team of uh, researchers at the Miller Center, and we started with about 10 criteria. And the very first one is, what is the election like? Is it a squeaker? Is it a landslide? Uh, then the next one's very obvious. In that first year, legislation passed, executive orders, executive action taken. Uh, what's the health of the economy in the first year? Is it going up? Is it going down? Is it stagnant? Uh, handling of crises. Uh, are there crises underway as a president comes into office? Are there new crises? Does he create crises? Is, does he create self-inflicted? wounds. Uh, National and international leadership uh, is another. Supreme Court appointments. Uh, Not many presidents get an opportunity to name someone to the high bench uh, the first year, but certainly Trump did. Uh, Communication skills and use of media uh, over that first year. Uh, The White House and executive branch organizations, uh, is is the White House and the executive branch, are they being staffed properly? Uh, Are they running smoothly? Are they in chaos? Uh, Another one, scandals. Are there any scandals in the first year? Uh, And finally, what is the president's approval rating coming into office? How does it track through the first year? What is it as he leaves uh, his first year behind? Because this has been such a different presidency and Donald Trump is such a different sort of man and candidate, did you have to add any categories? Did anything change 
it connects to the communication side, but our team tracked his tweets. How many positive tweets? How many negative tweets? Barack Obama had a Twitter feed, but I'm not sure people tracked it in the same way. That said, there are a lot of similarities baked into the analysis of tweets that go back to how we've thought about presidential communications in the past. So, for instance, after the president commented on the events here in Charlottesville, one of the questions always in a crisis is, what does the president say? When does he say it? What was the process of vetting information to the president about a crisis and about vetting the president's comments about the crisis? And my own personal first reaction, having I lived downtown in Charlottesville, was, who looked at this? Um, do, do people understand that this is actually a crisis? Presidents always have emotional reactions to things. I don't think we can deny a president that. I think what we all have a responsibility to do is teach a president, um, and presidents can learn, to teach a president that comments have impact um, and assessing information is important and assessing the comment is important before it goes out. Um, I then followed the press conference that he had from Trump Tower, uh, and I then was flashed back to the Kennedy administration, and I thought, you know, Trump is having to step carefully about white segregationists because they're in his party. So did John Kennedy. Uh, in his first year, uh, didn't send up civil rights legislation to the Congress because he knew in his own party white segregationists who had all the positions of seniority on the Hill uh, would not only turn it down, but then they would be against most of his other new frontier policies. But the difference was John Kennedy didn't go in public and speak in favor of white Southern segregationists. Looking at the reports on other presidencies, let's go back and look at some of the best and worst first years and compare and contrast with what we're seeing now and maybe what we saw with the Obama first years. He had Sure. I, one of the ones that comes to mind is the president that I serve, which is Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, like Donald Trump, is a bit of an outsider. His party controls both houses of Congress and his agenda stalls. By the end of August, he finally gets a first budget deal. Now he has a choice between passing health care and passing NAFTA. Now, he kind of ran against NAFTA. He said he was for it, but he wanted to reform it on labor and environmental standards. He tacks back to the center, brings in Republicans, and in November of 1993, signs NAFTA into law with two former Republican Senate presidents standing behind him, Bush and Ford, uh, as well as both Democratic and Republican leaders in the House. Now, flash forward to Obama. Obama comes in 2009. He's been in Congress for a few years, but he's really very much outside the system, has both houses of Congress, is facing a financial crisis. He passes four major pieces of legislation in his first year, all of which are passed only with Democratic votes, culminating in Obamacare, which gets passed in the 13th month. Sets up a very different relationship with Congress for the rest of his two terms of office. Bill Clinton is doing deals with Republicans left and right. Obama gets so much stuff done, a lot like LBJ and LBJ's second first year after the big landslide win in 64, passes Medicare and Medicaid, voting rights, education reform and immigration reform, almost all with relatively liberal Democrats. And a lot like Obama gets very little done with Congress after that. So what you do in your first year really makes a difference for how you work with the other party and your own party in future years. And what I think we're seeing with Trump is he'll probably get his agenda passed through both executive orders and through passing things with the Republican Congress. But if Democrats come back in, don't expect any cooperation or participation because he's, he's not provided any avenues for them to also take some credit for some wins. When people on the opposite side of, of the Trump camp uh, 
come to us and say, the sky is falling. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to the United States. Bill and I always point to the worst first year possible, Abraham Lincoln. The country literally splits apart and the South secedes from the Union and and the country uh, dissolves into civil war. Well, that's not comforting to me. (laughs) (laughs) So just saying things have been worse. Right. Do you see any trends when you look at your data in a different way? For instance, it was said for years that Virginians always vote for a governor who is of the opposite party than the incumbent president. Barack Obama was in for eight years, then we have Trump. Have you looked at how voters tend to vote in against the interests of the last president? One of the big trends that I think defines a president's first year is the belief and understanding that you're going to lose your midterm election, your your party will lose in the midterm elections the next year. Bill Clinton did. Barack Obama did. George W. Bush did not for two reasons, I think. Bush, like Clinton, came in. His party controlled both houses of Congress. He passed a tax cut in his first semester. He turned around and tried to do bipartisan legislation in his second semester, which he succeeded in doing. He passed No Child Left Behind working with Ted Kennedy. So he lived up to his promise of being a compassionate conservative. But the second thing that happened for George W. Bush was 9-11. His popularity spikes up into the 90s, and he had worked in a bipartisan fashion. So Democrats were not particularly opposed to Bush at that point, and Republicans were fired up about their president and feeling patriotic. Closing thoughts on what you have learned and noticed that surprised you or that has changed your understanding of our political system through doing this project? What what I'm struck in looking at the Trump presidency is in almost every dimension of what he's done, if you look through Barbara's list of items, if I, I tend to think about it as the things the president can control immediately, the people that work for him, the processes of government, how he manages politics, how he picks his priorities, his popularity. What we have with Donald Trump is massive change in each one of those things at the same time. Uh, I I mistakenly said at one point it's a controlled experiment. In a controlled experiment, you change one thing and you see what difference it makes. This is an uncontrolled experiment. He's changing things dramatically. There's this iconic photo now of him and five senior advisors sitting in the Oval Office and only one of them, Vice President Pence, is left. We've, ne- we've seen change in White House staffs before. We've never seen all the senior advisors be replaced in the first six months. That is different. It's just different. Bill Antholis is director and CEO of the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Barbara Perry is director of presidential studies at the Miller Center. Coming up next, an author who thinks all of the presidents are worth getting to know even the ones you probably can't name. Over 44 months, Colin Rafferty read a biography of every single American president. And then Rafferty, a writer and professor at the University of Mary Washington, wrote his own stories about each of these men, ranging from stream-of-conscious narratives to songs to medical diagnoses, Rafferty's Presidential Essays Collection gives us an unusually intimate look at American history. Colin, you've written an essay about every president of the United States. Why? What started you off? Well, I moved to Virginia in 2008, and I had grown up in Kansas and had gone to graduate school in Alabama. 
In terms of presidential history, Kansas has Dwight D. Eisenhower. Alabama has Rufus King, who was vice president for about a month and a half. And I moved suddenly to Virginia, and I was surrounded by presidents. And I realized that I couldn't name all the presidents in order. There were about 44 months until the next presidential election. There had been 44 presidents. And so if I read one presidential biography a month, I could have one read by the time the next election rolled around. So I went ahead and did that. And having 44 presidents gave me 44 subjects to try out nonfiction forms. There is the Van Buren essay where you talk about him playing with the Jackson children in the White House. Could you read from some of that essay? I can. And one of the setups that you have to to know for this essay is that Van Buren was a widower in the White House. His wife had passed away beforehand. So there is a story about Christmas 1835 in the Jackson White House. Vice President Van Buren plays games of tag with the Jackson children. And at one point, he must stand on one leg and chant, Here I stand, all ragged and dirty. If you don't come kiss me, I'll run like a turkey. No one does. And so the man who will be president-elect by next Christmas runs after the children like the bird, strutted like a game gobbler in search of a mate. The thing I really like about the turkey story is that it humanizes Van Buren. And maybe that was the the kind of great thing about this, this reading project and then this writing project was that it was a way to conceive of the presidents, especially the lesser known presidents, as human beings who had existed and they had lives and loves and flaws and complications that made them into real people rather than just faces on a placemat or wax statues in a museum. Can you pull from some of your essays, one essay per president, some of the favorite details that you were able to write about that you picked up from your investigation of these biographies? I have a a kind of fondness for uh, Chester Allen Arthur, who if you look up obscure president in the dictionary, he's right there. And I love the fact that only two presidents were inaugurated in New York City. One was George Washington. And if you go to New York City, you can go to Federal Hall where he was inaugurated. And it's a National Park Service site. It has all the pomp and circumstance you might expect from that. But the house where Chester Arthur was inaugurated after uh, James Garfield died is just, it's now just a brownstone on Lexington Avenue. There's a grocery store on the lower level, and there's a plaque under plexiglass there that mentions it, but the the plexiglass itself is almost uh, completely clouded over, and it's difficult to read there. Did you bring along with you some of your essays to share with us? I did. I brought the Franklin Pierce essay, and it is written in the form of a diagnosis. Patient, 52-year-old white male, married, now childless, 14th president of the United States, who recently suffered trauma in a train wreck after his election. Unbeknownst to his wife, patient allowed his name to be placed into nomination for the Democratic election. His wife fainted upon hearing the news that he had received the party's nod. After the election, the train carrying the soon-to-be first family derailed near Andover, rolling down an embankment. Patient's only living son was crushed, head almost severed, the body visible to the patient and his wife for quite some time. Patient is a combat veteran, but both he and his wife report great distress over the sight of their mangled son's body, as well as a subsequent sense of separation between them. Patient's wife stays to her own rooms of the executive mansion, dresses in black, does not speak with the public. Diagnosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, recognition of the fact of life's fragility of what can be torn apart in the ordinary moment. Treatment, diversions to occupy the mind, to push away the image of the son's near-severed head, it never goes away. Anything to occupy the mind and the hand, a hobby, a pastime, a bottle if he must, and he will. As president, he must keep the union from being torn apart despite his failure to save his son. These are desperate times. He is a desperate man. 
the man and the hour have met. Beautifully done. Thank you. I read your essays about Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon back to back. The Jackson essay is a little more sympathetic. Tell me about Jackson and your engagement with him. Jackson's a figure by which we can think about America and our, I think, our own relationship to America, that he is this war hero, that he defeats the British in the Battle of New Orleans, but he's also a president who really helps exacerbate the the genocide of Native Americans in the country and, and certainly re, you know removes them and famously defies the Supreme Court to affect their removal from uh, from the southeast. He is a um, a figure that we laud, but he's also a figure that I think is is reviled in in some corners. With Nixon, you straight up call him a monster in your essay. Is this revealing of how? It was different to write about more modern presidents. It was. And, and you know, Nixon was the, the first president who died while I was alive. I was a teenager at the time. And all the, the newspapers talked about how he had been this foreign policy hero. And he had been, you know, he had opened up China. And, and my dad you know, sort of kept saying, like, but bombing of Cambodia, secret wars and, you know, Watergate. And, <laughs> and so when, he, when Nixon passed away, that he was this figure that I thought of as, as Really, I think a kind of mon- you know, as a kind of monster. Is there something in particular you have learned? Do you think through the process of writing about all America's presidents? I think one of the really interesting aspects of it was to think about American history as a as a continuum, as a as a constantly moving and constantly evolving thing. That there really weren't set periods where everything changed, but instead a kind of steady evolution. The Civil War is a great example of this because Martin Van Buren, the eighth president, um, passes away during the Civil War. And every other president up to Teddy Roosevelt, the 26th president, is affected by that. Teddy Roosevelt's a young boy during the Civil War that he, he remembers seeing Union soldiers marching down Manhattan. And so there's this long stretch where you see everybody from Abraham Lincoln, who's president during the war, to uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who's obviously a major general during the Civil War, to William McKinley, who's a foot soldier in the Civil War. All of these men are affected by this one event. And so you keep seeing it from all these different angles and re-experiencing this event over and over. And it's a really fascinating way to think about these things. Same with any war, but also same with financial uh, panics and depressions. Same with uh, movements like the women's rights movements or the civil rights movement, that you see them through the eyes of different presidents and you see the 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 movement progressing along. We just have enough time for one more look at one of your essays, and I'd love to look at the one you wrote about Barack Obama. Was this the final essay you wrote? It was until election night, actually. Um, And then after the election, I had a kind of crisis moment where I didn't know what to do. I wasn't quite (laughs) sure at all, like, what 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 I would write. And I was thinking about all the things that presidents were involved with. And I realized that the Hall of Presidents at Disney World would have to shut down for a while and install a Trump animatronic figure. And so I wrote an essay about that process, right? How the the Imagineers at Disney World go about creating a presidential figure and installing it and, and perhaps the temptation that they might have to create a different version of the president who would speak in the Hall of Presidents. Huh. Do you mean create him in an image they wanted as opposed to what they thought he was? Right, right. I mean, I think in a way that's maybe the the biographer and the historian and the writer's temptation as well, that there's a a 
a desire to kind of try to make them in the image that you want to make them. That what, what you see and what you create is what you want to see. Well, Colin Rafferty, this is fascinating. Beautiful job. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. I appreciate it. Colin Rafferty is a writer and professor at the University of Mary Washington. Coming up next, the generation that invented grandparents. The first presidents lived much longer than you might expect, most of them surviving into their 80s or even 90s. Rebecca Brannan is an historian at James Madison University, and she says the founding fathers grappled with the same kinds of fears and frustrations that come with getting old today. It's amazing how long these first presidents live. George Washington lives to 67, and he's the shortest lived of the early presidents. John Adams will live into his 90s. Thomas Jefferson, the third president, will live into his 80s. They will outlive wives. Repeated childbearing was so hard on women that they had shorter life expectancies, even if they don't die in childbirth. It just strips your body of so much, uh, so many nutrients you need. When did it come to your mind that I should really investigate this period of old age experienced by the Founding Fathers? It probably doesn't hurt that I'm a Gen Xer watching my own parents and grandparents get older. But it also occurred to me that we're at this incredible global moment when the population worldwide is aging rapidly. And it struck me, you know, it's not the first time in history people have lived a very long time. Historians have joked for a long time, New England invented grandparents. Because in colonial New England, it was finally healthy enough that people lived long enough not only to see their first grandchild born, but to actually be an involved grandparent. Was there any sort of generational divide between the aging founding fathers and the leaders of the country who were younger coming up after them? Absolutely. James Madison, when he's older, complains, young men tell me I'm wonderful until I utter a political opinion. Then they say I'm a doddering old man who can't remember anything. Compared to the people who came before them, these founding fathers and their generation are startlingly modern. Their concerns about getting old are very much the same ones we have. What is the biological reality of aging. How can I control it? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to become somebody who's a burden on my family? Am I going to hurt? Thomas Jefferson, in the end, has bowel troubles, and he's really embarrassed. He doesn't go out in public as much because he's worried about losing control of his bowels, and he he turns to opiates to help with the pain. I didn't realize they had opiates. They call it laudanum. They take it in in liquid form in drops. Um, And the team at Monticello who are working on Thomas Jefferson's retirement papers have guessed he might be taking up to 100 drops a day. His doctor said no more than 50. So, of course, like a lot of people, he's doubling what he's told to take. He thinks he's doing fine. But the way historians know is his grandchildren are writing to each other about it. And they don't say anything to their grandfather, but they're writing to each other and they can see the damage and they think it's killing him. 
Do you want to share with me some of the letters, especially between Jefferson and Adams, both of them former presidents now about the same age, right? Yes. They have this extraordinary correspondence. They had been friends in the revolution, bitter political enemies, and then friends again, friends through letters. And John Adams writes Thomas Jefferson, I pity our good brother Madison, and he means James Madison. You and I have had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, though they have cost us grief, anxiety, often vexation, and sometimes humiliation. John Adams had a son who was an alcoholic who drank himself to death. He had a son who became president and was a terrible president. Uh, He had a son-in-law who was a wastrel who abandoned his daughter. So write all of these pains and yet the pleasures of having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. John Adams continues, it's been cheering to have them hovering about us. And I verily believe they have contributed largely to keep us alive. You also discovered through their letters that they had a deep-seated fear of dementia. Can you share with me some of how they express that to one another? Absolutely. John Adams actually becomes a little obsessed. He says he's terrified of dying at the top. He means the brain going. Thomas Jefferson writes John Adams, and this is a few years before they each die, and they're talking about a mutual acquaintance who's 93 years old. Charles Thompson still lives, cheerful, slender as a grasshopper, and so much without memory that he scarcely recognizes the members of his household. An intimate friend of his called on him, since it was difficult to make him recollect who he was, and sitting one hour, he told him the same story four times over. Is this life? It is at most but the life of a cabbage, when all our faculties have left and assamy, debility, and malaise left in their places when the friends of our youth are all gone and a generation has risen around us whom we know not. I have ever dreaded a doting old age. They say that Stark, who was 93 years old, could walk about his room. I am told you walk well and firmly. I can only reach my garden, and that with sensible fatigue. I ride, however, daily, but reading is my delight. And he concludes this letter in a way that he concludes a lot of letters at the end of his life. God bless you and give you health, strength, good spirits, and as much of life as you think worth having. Had they read much of old age in their books that caused them fear? There's this fascination uh, with old age. Um, And the other thing I find really modern is there's this almost explosion of literature about how do you achieve longevity. Benjamin Franklin thinks you should bathe in warm water, but Thomas Jefferson gets up every morning and puts his feet into freezing cold water, and both are convinced this will allow them to lead a long, healthy life. Some medical writers suggest um, extreme calorie limitation. Some people say you should drink wine. And some people say uh, you should avoid alcohol at all costs. But what unites them is this belief that if you just do the right things, if you live the right way, you too can achieve a long life. Rebecca Brannan is a professor of history at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to With Good Reason. In 2015, we broadcast a show about a team of people who are proofreading and digitizing 50,000 letters of America's founding fathers. More than 30 people had spent three years on the project, and many of them were now experiencing a sense of loss and sorrow when it was over. Today, we're rebroadcasting that program, beginning with a conversation with Bill Kissel, Donna Carty, and Dina Radley. They were part of a Documents Compass team led by Sue Perdue, which made accessible online the letters of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John and Abigail Adams, and James Madison. And that was part of a larger National Archives project called Founders Online. Bill, Donna, and Dina, you spent months and even years now together reading and transcribing the letters of the Founding Fathers. You've said you've been deeply moved and maybe even changed by it. Bill, is that fair? Oh, it's very fair. Somewhere in that process, I remember having seen a production of Hamlet when at the very end, the whole stage was full of blood-covered bodies. And then as the lights came down, all the bodies stood up and came to the foreground. And it was as if those people had suddenly, in fact, come alive. And that's exactly how I felt about these letters. I felt as if each one of them individually or collectively should stand up and come forward for what was a curtain call and well-deserved applause. They were, they were just terribly real and personal to me. And Dina, you said they felt maybe less like characters on stage than intimates of yours. This was like a soap opera. Um, I got so involved in, in the reading, and I was one of the uh, few people that was specialized in Abigail Adams' letters. Her writing, handwriting is a little difficult. I could guess a letter. I could guess what that word was because I became so intimately involved with her writing that I could almost anticipate what she was going to say. What sort of writer was she? Was she emotional? Was she brilliant? She was emotional. That's why I got totally involved in this, because she expressed herself so visually. I mean, if she was angry about something, if she was disappointed in someone, she just said it. Most of what she wrote about were her children and what was going on, her grandchildren. Detailed progress reports, but very involved in all of her children and grandchildren's lives. Did you find yourself wanting to come to work just to see what would happen today? The next chapter, absolutely. Always, always looking forward to this job. I've told everyone in my life that I found my calling. Unfortunately, had a beginning and an end. Uh, But yes, love this job. Donna, the job is what? There were more than 20 of you who were transcribing accurately in teams these letters of the Founding Fathers? Yes, we were in teams of two. There were about 40 of us all together. One person had the actual letter in front of them, an image of it, in the original handwriting. And the other person had a transcript that was made some time ago when they didn't have the tools that we have now to be accurate. Uh, The one I remember in particular the best is uh, the town in New Hampshire that wrote to Jefferson that they would be delighted to go to war with France. But the transcriber had them writing, we will arise from our vices and go and gather camels on the dry fields of Mars. (laughs) Now, something had to be wrong with that. And what was it? 
Well, what they were saying is we will arise from under our vines, our grapevines, and we will go and gather laurels on the dry fields of Mars because Mars was the god of war. So we were always coming on things like that, that we had to check the spellings, check the name, because sometimes people would spell them differently. I think one of the things these letters did is began to show us the multiple sides of these people. And Abigail certainly had the Mama Bear side, but she also was not at all hesitant to be a very engaging politician. And she was also, as John was, uh, somewhat of a classicist in that she would quote poetry at the drop of a hat. Who were some of the poets she might refer to? Well, she would certainly refer to Shelley. She would refer to Milton, I suppose. Uh, John would refer to Swift. They quoted very often in Latin or even in Greek. So they did often uh, write with phrases in Latin and Greek? Indeed, they did. I have a feeling that Abigail pulled it out of her memory, whereas I feel that John uh, and Jefferson probably turned to their library to find the appropriate quote. Did you have an appreciation for history through all this of more than just flushing out the individuals? Did it help you see the global context better? Yes. I was not aware of the events going on in Europe and their influence on the American scene. For instance, uh, John Adams took it upon himself while he was sitting around in Europe He got so bored, he took it upon himself to go to the Dutch bankers and got money for us. He single-handedly did that, and he had no permission from the Congress. You mean to finance the revolution? Yes. I had no idea. This was like behind-the-scenes things that are not in history books that I've come across. You got very much the impression of just how tentative a country we were and what the opinion was of the European countries. I mean, they half expected us to disappear. How could you tell? The lack of respect. Uh, The American flag mattered nothing whatsoever. They had no hesitation whatsoever, the British, of basically just taking over an American ship, declaring all the American seamen British, if they had originally come from Britain, and conscripting them onto their ships. Bill, I asked each of you to bring some of the excerpts of the letters that really struck you in the course of this project to show the depth and breadth of these people. Tell us what struck you. Mm -hmm. This is a letter written in 1815, and this kind of illustrates what I call the everyman side of John Adams. He wrote, I wish I could take a walk with you in all the churchyards and burying grounds in Virginia. How many hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children have lived and died in Virginia to whom no monument has been created? Open your soul, sir, and disclose your natural feelings and frankly say whether you would change ancestors with any man living. I believe you would not. Is there a human being who would? How shall any legislator prevent the rich, the great, the powerful, the learned, the ingenious from distinguishing by durable, costly, and permanent memorials their own ancestors from the descendants of the vast, the immense majority who lie mingled with the dust totally forgotten? And that, that struck me. There was, a, there was a note of pathos in that, a sadness that, that uh, I think I can only call John Adams' sense of every man. Uh, This is a letter that uh, 
he wrote to his great friend, Dr. Rush, in 1806. So again, he was out of office. We in this commonwealth are making great advances, if not in the perfectibility of human nature, yet in the great art of lying and libeling in the other arch, which grow out of them, such as wielding the cudgel and the pistol. There is little for me to lose in the worst times or cases that can happen. My property is small and the remainder of my life is short. But, O oh my country, how I mourn over thy follies and vices, thy ignorance and imbecility, thy contempt of wisdom and virtue and overweening admiration of fools and knaves. John Adams and patriotism or patriotism, a strong streak in him that runs through almost all his letters. Don't you so admire him for that? I admired him enormously for that, and I, I, I felt a keen sense of where is that today. And so did the common people. They thought these people could do anything. How do you know that? Well, I remember specifically one letter to Thomas Jefferson from the western edge of Kentucky. And he said, uh, my neighbor's son has been kidnapped by Indians, and now they claim to own him. What are you going to do about it? Ha! Huh. They thought they walked on water. Absolutely. There's another wonderful one. I, I remember Donna and I read this together, and we got almost into a giggling fit over it. It was so funny. This is about Franklin, and it's a letter written by John Adams to a woman whose name I've forgotten. But one excerpt from that is this little touch on Franklin. The Duchess de Polignac was a great admirer of the Grand Franklin. When in company with the king and queen, she was always launching out in uh, panegyrics upon the Grand Franklin. The king sometimes smiled, sometimes snickered, but said very little. After some time upon a visit to the royal manufactory of porcelain at Sevres, he gave secret orders to have her chamber pot made of the finest materials and most exquisite workmanship with the most exact portrait of the Grand Franklin painted on the bottom of it, on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> the king presented this to the duchess with his own hand that she might have the satisfaction of contemplating the image of her grand philosopher and politician whenever she had the occasion to look at it. <laughs> you can imagine Donna and I read that and we just said, is that what he's really saying? We just laughed and giggled. And what are they talking about, the grand Franklin? We think of him as the everyman, a very simple, bright guy. Why would they have mocked him so? He was kind of poking fun at him, uh, that is, Adams was. He was kind of poking at the, I suppose, the success socially that Franklin apparently had in France that he, John Adams, did not have. And I think there was a touch of envy in that. The French got Franklin. They considered him like themselves. They understood him. Adams, not so much. Adams was very uh, religious and very faithful to his wife, Abigail, where Franklin left his wife, Deborah, and their, I believe, 12 children, took his place as the postmaster general of the United States. She did all the work while he was in France. And he slept with, I don't know how many women over there, and just got into the whole raunchiness of the French society, where Adams stuck his nose up at that. But Jefferson also sort of embraced this freer, libertine French culture. Yes, both Jefferson and, and uh, Franklin did. But Adams seemed to be more uh, in tune with the British at that point. 
there was a fantastic relationship between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson when they both served in Europe. And in fact, Thomas Jefferson spent most of his waking hours at Abigail and John's uh, mansion. And after they both came back to this country, they were on totally opposite sides of many, many issues. There were hurt feelings back and forth. And at one point, Benjamin Rush, who is considered the father of psychology, and had served in the Continental Congress with John Adams, and they had become very close. But he also kept in touch with Thomas Jefferson, and he formed a bridge between them. I'm going to start crying now. And um, if I can read from that letter, this is a letter he wrote to John Adams in December of 1811. And now, my dear friend, permit me again to suggest to you to receive the olive branch which has thus been offered to you by the hand of a man who still loves you, fellow laborers in erecting the great fabric of American independence, fellow sufferers in the calumnies and falsehoods of party rage, fellow heirs of the gratitude and affection of posterity, and fellow passengers in a stage that must shortly convey you both into the presence of a judge with whom the forgiveness and love of enemies is the condition of acceptance. Embrace each other. Bedo your letters of reconciliation with tears of affection and joy. Bury in silence all the causes of your separation. Recollect that explanations may be proper between lovers, but are never so between divided friends. Were I near to you, I would put a pen into your hand and guide it while it composed the following short address to Mr. Jefferson. Quote, Friend and fellow laborer, in the cause of the liberty and independence of our common country, I salute you with the most cordial wishes for your health and happiness. John Adams, unquote, and he wrote to Jefferson. And as the letters progressed, there were 150-some letters over the next, until they passed away. The irony, you know, and they say this couldn't have been written uh, on the Jubilee year, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams passed away. And it was almost as though they both lived for that day. Jefferson passed away about five hours before John Adams. And uh, John Adams, of course, did not know that. And his final words were something to the effect of Thomas Jefferson survives. Oh, gosh. Don't you get goosebumps thinking about that? At the time, John Adams was 91 and Thomas Jefferson was 83. You were also saying earlier that you had just come to be so touched and immersed in the life of Abigail Adams. Did you mourn her passing yourself? Absolutely as well as when her daughter passed away. Her daughter, Abigail Jr., they called her Nabby, died of breast cancer. I think I was surprised that they even knew what cancer was then. Abigail was so upset she couldn't even go and tend to Abby, who had taken a, a lengthy coach trip from where she lived in New York to her parents' home to die there. It was John Adams who took care of Nabby in the final week or two of her life. And I'd, I would never have thought that John would have the you see him as a very uh, formal kind of stiff person, but he was the one who tended to his daughter. Do you feel as though you're experiencing a loss now? Are you are you having withdrawal from this terrific play, this incredible miniseries that you want more episodes and seasons of? We're all shaking our heads. Yes, uh, that's the way. That's the word. Withdrawal. I got teary-eyed just talking about this today because I do miss it. It's like it, it was such a part of my life. 
I've been known to say that uh, we would get out our shovels and dig them up if we could get them to write more letters. I think all of that's true, but I think somewhere in this we're missing something. It's one thing to say we wish the letters were, as they're going to be, readily available, and it's one thing to say we wish they could be read or read by uh, kids or adults fascinated with the period. But it's an altogether different thing to find the enchantment in them that, um, that we found by the immersion. Bill and Dina and Donna, thank you for sharing your insights and with good reason. You're very welcome, and I think we thank you for giving us the chance to share them with more people. Bill Kissel, Donna Carty, and Dina Radley all worked on Documents Compass, which contributed to the larger Founders Online project of the National Archives. Thanks to the National Archives, there are now more than 150,000 fully searchable letters of the Founding Fathers available for free online. Here to talk about Founders Online are Kathleen Williams and Sue Perdue. Kathleen Williams is Executive Director of the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives, and Sue Perdue is Program Director of Documents Compass at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Kathleen, we've all heard of the National Archives, but a few of us have occasion to visit. What do you think most of us would have occasion to recognize that's part of the National Archives? Well, I think that that would naturally fall to what we call the Charters of Freedom, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the Bill of Rights. But it also includes all of the presidential libraries that have been established, plus it will include papers of individual presidents before they were presidents. Sue, let me ask you, when you first were charged by Kathleen with digitizing these letters, editing them, getting them online, you had to hire a small army of smart people. We did. We did have to hire a small army, numbering about 35 to 50 people at its highest point, probably 50 people. It introduced a lot of people who had no experience with working with documents to a world that I think changed them. Could you see that growth over time? Completely. It was like they all sort of adopted particular people. They got really just enamored of the people that they were reading, and they became really devoted to the process. And how many documents did you have from which of the founding fathers? So we had a total of uh, about 51,000 documents. How long does it take to do one letter? Mm. We averaged, I think our original prediction was about an hour per letter, and that was all of the steps that needed to take place. But that average doesn't hold up necessarily because sometimes we had letters that were 70 pages long, (laughs) in which case then actually it would take about 10 hours to proofread it. And the other problem, of course, is these people had unreadable handwriting. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Or you have documents, documents with holes in them, or the copy that we have to read from is a little fuzzy. So there are a lot of hurdles to get over in order to get a good transcription of a document. And Kathleen, have you heard from people who've read any of the letters online? We have evidence from users of the site writing to us with some frequency, expressing their thanks and their appreciation, just as users. Um, If I could just quickly pick from uh, one or two, I've got a high school teacher writing to me 
quote, this resource is breathtaking in its scope and value. I already have students accessing it for their class projects. Well, we've heard from people as far away as California, who uh, one woman in particular who said that it, if she hadn't had something like Founders Online, she would have had to pay to travel to Washington, D.C., or wherever she could get access to the, all this material, that it's really, for, in her words, a goldmine for her research. Uh, likewise, we've heard of a, a gentleman who is a composer who works at the Berklee School of Music who lives in Boston who's writing a cantata based on George Washington's letters from the Revolutionary War period. So there are really surprising ways that people would use these letters. Sue Perdue is the program director of Documents Compass at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Kathleen Williams is executive director of the National Historical Publications and Records Commission at the National Archives. You're listening to a cantata with lyrics taken from a letter George Washington wrote when he returned home after the Revolutionary War. The piece was composed in all parts sung by Gates Thomas, a professor at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. Gates says he'd been reading the great biography of George Washington by James Thomas Flexner when he was struck by a quote from Washington's own writing. Returning home to Mount Vernon after nine years away, Washington spied a grove of trees that he had planted just before leaving for war, and he wrote his impression of the site in a letter to one of his French generals. Those trees which my hands have planted by their rapid growth at once indicate a knowledge of my declination and their disposition to spread their mantles over me before I go hence to return no more. For this, their gratitude, I will nurture them while I stay. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute-designated cancer center, researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Allison Quance is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzyk is our producer. John Last and Kelly Libby are our associate producers. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. And our intern is Georgiana Reed. 
For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Switch my